0: Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/work. shopify.com/work. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue.
1: Another cool fact.
2: This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. The words of Jeffrey Dahmer are voiced by an actor.
3: Dahmer is serving
4: 15
2: consecutive life sentences for the murders of 17 males.
4: The most prolific slayer in the history of the state of Wisconsin. From 1978
2: to 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer murdered 17 men and boys. He cannibalized some of his victims, dismembered their bodies, and preyed on the vulnerable, becoming one of the most depraved serial killers in American history. But what is the real story of this most unlikely of killers? And could this ever happen again? I'm criminal psychologist, Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Mind of a Monster, Jeffrey Donner. Episode five, Body Parts. It's June 30th, 1991, and we're in Chicago, Illinois, where the city is alive with excitement. Tens of thousands of people have traveled from all over America to be part of the annual Gay Pride Parade. Just 20 years earlier, there were only 300 people involved. Now the crowd numbers 100,000. There's music, political activism, and celebrations. As the parade draws to a close, 20-year-old Matt Turner waits at a bus stop to make his journey home. It's here that he's approached by a blonde-haired, slightly older man. It's Jeffrey Dahmer. Dahmer compliments Turner's looks and offers to pay him money to have some professional photographs taken. Turner agrees and the pair take the Greyhound bus from Chicago to Milwaukee, and then a cab to a rundown part of town. In apartment 213, Dahmer gives Turner a drink polluted with drugs and the young man soon begins to feel woozy. Watching, waiting, biding his time, Dahmer grabs a strap and strangles Turner to death. He dismembers his body before storing his head in the freezer and packing the rest into a big blue vat of acid. Another young life cut brutally short. Turner's father was interviewed in 1991.
5: The guy learned them in from uh, photos and things. And Matt loved it taking pictures and things. And I think it was his aspiration to be a model at one time, so it was I could see where it was kinda easy to bring him in on uh, photos.
2: By July sixth, Jeffrey Dahmer is on the hunt again. He kills three young men in the space of just fourteen days. Jeremiah Weinberger followed by Oliver Lacey and then Joseph Breidhoft. The men are drugged and dismembered, but the depravity has gone up a level. Dahmer stores their heads in his freezer and saves Oliver Lacey's heart to eat later. The speed of his killings is staggering and Dahmer is no longer able to compartmentalize his life. His crimes are seeping into the daylight life. He hasn't been to work in days. Vernell Bass is the author of Across the Hall and was a neighbor of Jeffrey Dahmer.
5: He told me that he had got fired from his job, but he didn't dwell on it, and the way I found out was that when he when he should have been sleeping, he wasn't he wasn't sleeping, he was drinking. And that's when I asked him about, you know, don't you have to go to work? And that's when he told me that he had lost his job for being late too many times. And then the smell everybody everybody was complaining on the second floor about the smell and it had gotten to the point where the management had started knocking on his door complaining about the smell as well and the smell wouldn't go away he had been served an eviction notice and now he's got the smell he's getting pressure from the neighbors from us he's got management evicting him he has no income and i think that he got so caught up wrapped up into killing that that became his main focus to where he became careless
2: here jeffrey dahmer describes in horrifying detail the meticulous process he develops
6: just slipped from sternum uh, to the, you know, pubic area. Remove the internal organs and then cut the flesh starting from the calves, legs, uh, and then up. Uh, Remove the head. Put that in the freezer. And the skeleton that was defleshed, uh, I would put that in a large 80-gallon uh, cooking pot that I had pour in the box of that wall cleaning solution I would stripped the remaining flesh off uh, turn up the, to a boil and I, I did the same with the heads so I had a, uh, a big clean skeleton and sometimes I would save portions of the flesh for consumption Most of it went out in the garbage or uh, in the acid bath, and a lot of the unused skeletons went in the acid bath, too, or were flushed down the toilet. So that's how it was done.
2: A few days after the murder of Joseph Braidhoft, Dahmer is out on the prowl again. He approaches three men and offers to give them $100 to accompany him to his apartment and pose for nude photos. One of the men, Tracy Edwards, agrees. When he enters the apartment, Edwards notices the smell in the boxes of acid. The Exorcist 3 is playing on the TV, and his host is frankly odd. Dahmer is drinking heavily and chanting to himself. Edwards knows he needs to get the hell out of there. Annie Schwartz is the author of Monster, the true story of the Jeffrey Dahmer murders. Jeffrey Dahmer was killing at such a... Pace
1: that he was just getting careless and he was getting messy. And he had brought Tracy Edwards home, then throws a handcuff on on Tracy Edwards, puts a knife to his throat, which is not this was none of this was really Dahmer's MO. He was just getting he was getting careless. And Tracy Edwards jumped up and ran out of the apartment. He was able to overpower Dahmer and he ran out of the apartment. He's running down the street, he's in his underwear with one handcuff hanging off of his wrist and he's running down the street and he sees a police squad. Now he sees the police squad and he approaches the police squad because he just wanted to get the handcuff off. He wasn't gonna report Jeffrey Dahmer. He wanted that handcuff off. He's not going to report anything to the police. So he runs up to the cop car he's got the handcuff hanging there and he says to the officers, hey, you know, if you guys got a key, I can get this off. And the joke the cops made with him was, hey, which one of us did you escape from? And then Tracy Edwards starts rambling on and on about the crazy guy and these scary pictures. And then the guy put a knife to my neck. And, you know, he's telling the craziest stories. He is telling the most fantastical information of these two officers, Rolf Mueller and Bob Routh, and they decide to go back with Tracy Edwards up to the apartment, which not exactly police procedure to take the victim back to the place where the person who victimized them was, but these things are all lost in the inevitability of what happened. So they knock on the door of Dahmer's apartment. Dahmer opens the door and he sees the police. Well, he's okay with that because remember he's evaded the police before. He has been able to talk his way out of this before. So the officers say, yeah, can we, you know, can we have a conversation with you? And Dahmer says, sure. He's opening the door a little bit more and then sees Tracy Edwards behind them. Panics. And now we're off to the races. Now he starts to fight with the officers. They get him decentralized. They get him on the ground. And that is the moment that that Dahmer stops fighting with them because he knows he's caught, it's over. So now the officers are looking around because this guy said something about a knife and you know, this guy obviously didn't want them to come in the house, so what's going on?
2: They find the knife, don't they? Tell me what happens next.
1: I don't know how to explain it, but for those that know police officers, ask them what they do at almost every single crime scene. They always open the refrigerator. It's not to get something to eat. It's just, you always open the refrigerator. It's just something that cops do. So one of the officers, Rolf Mueller, opens up the refrigerator and there is a human head in the refrigerator on a plate. And Rolf Mueller slams the door of the refrigerator and screams. Bob Routh described it as just a blood-curdling scream. And he screamed to Bob, there's an effing head in the refrigerator. Bob comes out. They start looking around, and they finally call. They call for detectives. They call for sergeant. They call for other people to come to the crime scene because what are they looking at? It stinks, but what does it stink like? So they call for backup. They call for more people, and now... Other people are coming to the scene.
2: It's late and it doesn't take long for Jeffrey Dahmer's neighbor, Vernell Bass, and his then wife, Pam, to be disturbed by the unfolding events.
5: When they arrested him, Pam and myself, we were asleep. And I heard the knocking on the door. And so I got up to, got up to answer the door to look out and see who it was. And when I o- looked through the people, saw two police officers standing at my door. And so I panicked a little bit, you know, trying to think what had I done for the police to be here? You know, that's the first thing that went to my mind, you know, why are they here? And so I I looked out again, and that's when one of them parted, and I could see that Jeff's door was open. I could see that there were police officers in his apartment with the door open. And so that's when I yelled, told them just a minute. And so I put on put on a house coat and then I went back and answered the door. And that's when they told us that we had to evacuate the building. That was the reason that they had, had woke us up because we had to get out of the building because they had found toxic chemicals in his apartment. And so that's when I asked, where's Jeff? Is he okay? And that's when one of the officers told me, yeah, that fucker is okay, he's okay, and he's in jail. I, I just followed their instructions as far as getting out of the building.
2: Where did everybody go when they were evacuated?
5: We went to the rear of the building. Everybody was standing right there watching. It was after midnight.
2: Did you see them carrying out the items from Jeff's apartment?
5: Oh, sure. I I was watching as, as as they brought out the small freezer. And I also saw, witnessed them bringing out the blue barrel. They brought that out. And then I also observed them bringing out the little small boxes that he had the skulls in. I was watching that. And as they were taking out the boxes, the smell was leaving with them. By the time the last box was gone, uh, the smell was gone entirely.
2: The discovery of multiple human body parts in an apartment is not something that can be kept secret for long. Annie Schwartz's connection to this case begins on the night of the discovery. She was a young reporter at the Milwaukee Journal at the time.
1: Someone calls an intrepid young reporter and says, you're not going to believe what we just found. So initially, when I heard, you know, when I heard them say to me, it looks like this guy's been saving body parts, I thought, oh, was he robbing graves? Was he stealing bodies from a morgue? I mean, you know, those are all my frames of reference. We didn't
2: have Dexter. Not a lot of true crime back in that time. Right, and it's not going to come to mind that he's killing people and keeping the body parts. You're not going to think of that when I arrived at the scene, they
1: had evacuated the whole building because of the barrel, because it was chemical. And there was, and he was keeping chemicals and they didn't know what kind of hazardous materials this was. So they evacuate the building. The residents come out, I show up and there is not police tape up yet on the front door. It was no kidding the creepiest crime scene ever, because when I came upon it, When I walked up the lawn and up to the apartment building, there are all kinds of people out on the lawn, but it's quiet. And that's not what a crime scene is like. They're loud, people are talking, sometimes people are laughing, they're all sharing their theories, but this was really quiet. I interviewed a couple of the people who were Dahmer's neighbors, but then I went into the building and then I went up to apartment 213. I saw Rolf Mueller standing outside in the hallway, the officer that had opened the refrigerator. And he had his hands covering his face. Later on, I would see that photograph of him standing like that because a photographer for the Milwaukee Journal, the paper that I was working for at the time, managed to capture it. And Rolf Mueller was never the same. He was haunted by this case for the rest of his life. Officer wellness is a new term. You know, back then, You open a a refrigerator and you find a head inside and somebody says, suck it up, buttercup, don't forget to write your report. He never got over the trauma of that. He had nightmares and his wife said that he just was never, he was never the same. What else did they find in the apartment? Skulls were found everywhere. They found skulls in his closet. They found skulls in his refrigerator and they saw this makeshift altar that he was going to try and have come true. Remember that so much of Jeffrey Dahmer's crimes were about making some fantasy come true. And one of the fantasies that he developed was this idea that he could have
2: a shrine to his his victims. So you're a reporter and you've got this incredible story. What happens next?
1: I had Jeffrey Dahmer's name very early and we had a lot of discussions on the news desk that morning. Are we going to, you know, are we going to share this name? He hasn't been charged yet. And we decided that the case was so huge that we couldn't not share Jeffrey Dahmer's name. So the very first story, which was broken in our newspaper by me, the headline was Body Parts Litter Apartment. And that was the first story. And after that story came out, I mean, it was just a floodgate of people that come forward and say, my loved one has been missing. Is my is my daughter one of these people? Is my son one of these people? Is my... So now the police are getting all kinds of people coming forward saying, let's see if my loved one is, is one of those
2: people. The situation is unparalleled. Usually, serial killers do all they can to get rid of any evidence within their home. With Jeffrey Dahmer, police have stumbled upon an apartment that's not only full of evidence, but parts of his victims, too. But how on earth are they quite literally going to piece it all together?
1: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend.
3: If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry, because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, Okay not only that simply safe offers a 60-day money back guarantee and us news and world report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024 simply safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind and i want you to have that too right now get 20% off any new simply safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster there's no safe like simply safe
6: The only, uh, the only reason the last guy got away was because I was completely unconscious for at least six hours. I have no memory of anything that happened, but I was still functioning. I came back to consciousness five minutes before I heard the knock at the door, uh, and there were the police. I didn't have any time for a cover story or anything.
2: It's terrifying to think that had Tracy Edwards not approached the police to remove his handcuff, Jeffrey Dahmer may have continued for months, maybe even years longer. But on July 23, 1991, police finally have Jeffrey Dahmer in custody. It is 13 years since his first murder in Ohio, when he brutally killed hitchhiker Stephen Hicks. Dennis Murphy was a homicide detective in Milwaukee and was called in early to question Jeffrey Dahmer. Can you tell us about the night he was arrested?
7: At three in the morning, I got a phone call from the shift lieutenant to come in and question a guy that had body parts all over his apartment. And I thought they were screwing around with me. He said, I'll call you back," and he hung up. Well, then he called me back in an hour and just, get in here as soon as you can. We want you to talk to this guy. Just you and, at that time, Patrick Kennedy, who was a brand-new homicide detective. I had gotten down to the office and was briefed on the skulls in the apartment, the body parts, the heart, the bicep, the bodies in the barrel. They had the refrigerator. I, I wasn't at the scene, but they briefed me on everything. And he says, make, "Make sure to go in there and get a good confession." So I talked to Kennedy. After I got down there and after I was briefed, and he came out and said, "This guy's a nut." He said he killed ten, twelve people. So I went in and I introduced myself, and he looked at me and he says, "Why don't you just shoot me for what I did?" And Those were his first words to me, and I says. I don't want to do that, I want to talk to you, I want to find out what happened, I want to, I understand, I know what was in your apartment, and I have to identify a lot of these people, assuming everything was real. Then I sat down with Dahmer, and the he says, do you mind if we call you Jeff, and you can call us by our first names? And we did, and we uh, had a discussion for the next, 10, 12 hours where we went into detail on everything he remembered.
2: What was he like?
7: Well, he was disheveled when I saw him because he had resisted the arrest. And then he had been drinking also. That was one thing Dahmer did. He drank on all the occasions when he did this. So he was disheveled and beaten. He was a beaten person. He, He could go nowhere. You know, he wasn't getting released. And later on, he said, I'm going to make you guys famous.
2: He said those words? Yes. Did he ever talk to you about what motivated him to commit these crimes?
7: His own warped selfish. Desire for self-gratification.
2: What was going through your mind when he was telling you about the horrific things he'd done?
7: We knew he was going to have insanity please. so we had to make sure that what he was telling us was, you know, complete. And like he planned it, he crunched up the house and he took a cab a block from his apartment, walked to it so no one would catch him. Everything was planned.
2: So your goal is to make sure that he demonstrated that this was all planned. That makes sense. That first interview must have been exhausting.
7: We got those 12, the first day we talked to him. In that long interview when I came in and we went through him one at a time, took our time. We knew there was no rush, he's not going anywhere. So we had all the time in the world. He loved coffee, he loved cigarettes. And at that time our building, had a no-smoking policy. Well, we allowed him to smoke and drink coffee and told him we'd keep him out of the bullpen, which is to house a group of prisoners, because we didn't want him associating with anyone, just by himself. And we didn't want him committing suicide, so we put him on suicide watch. Because he was, like he said, he told me to kill him. So we had to be careful and make sure that everything was done right.
2: That makes sense. There's a lot of pressure on you because you have many jobs at that point. You've got to get him to confess. You need to make sure that you're proving that he was sane when he did it. You have to start identifying the victims, and you have to make sure Dahmer's still alive. A lot of goals you're trying to fulfill at that moment. Well, we had all the time in the world. Did it seem to you that Jeffrey Dahmer was telling the truth? And did he seem remorseful at all?
7: He, he said he was sorry. I think he was sorry that he got caught. But he was sorry that for the families of the victims, but he never showed any emotion. You know, he just talked nonchalantly about it. And he helped us identify all of them by either... The photographs he had taken in his apartment, which were there were 85 of them, he remembered certain body parts on people. One was missing a kidney, one had another nipple.
6: One thing that's puzzled me uh, is why I can't seem to generate more feeling. I mean, if I had been able to feel more emotion, Uh, this may not have happened, but uh, it just seems like my uh, emotion, my emotional side has been dead.
2: As district attorney, E. Michael McCann took an active interest in the Dahmer case.
4: We have an office of about 120, so it's a substantial office. and I spend most of my time doing administrative duties, but some major cases I take myself. In this one, I wanted to get involved in right away. office of the medical examiner called me and said, look, at, we've got something going on here, so the next morning, first thing I looked into it. Nobody knew at that time that there was actually going to be 16 people that he had killed in Milwaukee. But he, from the beginning on, uh, he gave full confession to the police. He had a very excellent lawyer, a fine guy character, Jerry Boyle, who told him to be quiet, but he ignored that. And of course, you don't have to abide by what your lawyer says. And he was cooperative with the police almost from the beginning, giving a full statement. So now there's a community of people. The arrest has been made, it's in the newspapers. People Was my son, was he one of those people? You can imagine the agony of those people.
2: The pressure to identify these victims
4: must have been huge. Dahmer didn't have names, but he was cooperative on descriptions.
6: My main concern is getting these people identified so this can end for everybody. I want to get them all identified so this can be cleared up from beginning to end. Uh, Ohio was the first one. Then no more until Wisconsin. I blacked out it started again.
2: Even with the descriptions, this is still a mammoth task for the police. Annie Schwartz describes further.
1: The medical examiner's office was able to determine just from the evidence at the scene that we were looking at as many as maybe 10 or 11 victims. Turned out to be 17 victims. But in Dahmer's apartment, so... This is 1991. What they were able to do in the Milwaukee Police Department was they made a a photocopy of the human body. And after Dahmer's confession, they knew they had about 17 victims. So they made 17 copies of this human body. And so they take the copies. And as they found a femur, they would say, "Okay, well, circle the femur and then Okay. well, here, here's a skull, but it's definitely not from the same body that that femur was from. So the Milwaukee Police Department creates a war room, as does the medical examiner's office, that has all of these images hanging on the wall so that they can try to identify the victims.
2: Meanwhile, pressure from the residents of Milwaukee is growing. The police department is inundated with calls and inquiries from people wondering if their loved one was one of Dahmer's victims. Dennis Murphy, tell me what it was like getting all these calls and inquiries from people related to missing persons and having to comb through everything and figure out were these people, or were they not, victims of Jeffrey Dahmer?
7: Well, this investigation uh, consisted of 68 detectives and patrolmen working together regarding family members missing. And what we did, we had a 24-hour hotline, and all calls were answered either by the uniform or by the detectives. We also had a detective at the medical examiner's office to recover all evidence or any evidence and make sure it was shipped to the FBI for further information in our investigation.
2: I returned to E. Michael McCann.
4: So it was quite, you can imagine, the concern. Medical examiner, please, my son, trying to find out whose body is this. The parts, the the parts he had kept, the, the trophies, more or less, weren't substantial parts. They could work, if it was a face, they could work with Dentists, And it was a lo- quite a while that they were able to identify exactly who those 16 men were. It took a while. We could not have done it without timer's help. It just could not have been done. Much of it had to come from information he gave. Yeah.
2: There was one case that may still not have been linked had he not confessed. The murder of Stephen Hicks 13 years earlier.
4: We had been in contact with the family. Our When Dahmer confessed to our police the slaying in the Bath, Ohio, they notified the uh, Bath, Ohio police who came up to Milwaukee and interviewed him. It was, you know, the whole thing was so sad for everybody, so sad for the families. I felt so badly, just, just starting with the, with the family, you know, in, in Ohio. All those years, not knowing what happened to your son, the pain of that. And then, again, I think I thought in my mind, the cops are coming. I could see a guy holding his wife's hand. I said, honey, oh, it's not going to be good news. You know, they called, was good news. They called, said, hey, we're coming over. Put on, we're going to have a drink. We've got something to tell you. They knew what was coming. And I, I just, as a parent, that would be hellish, 13 years gone. And to be told, No, your hopes, your dreams, that he's not alive, he's
2: gone. Rita Isbell's family would also receive the same devastating news. How did you find out that your brother Earl was one of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims?
8: The Red Cross knocked on my door and I was way in Tennessee. Say, you and your kids pack your things. You have an emergency. We have to send you guys to Milwaukee. The Red Cross. They sent us here. We came here. All the family and relatives from out of town was here. But when I got here, they had a service. where we were born in, me and Earl was born in Indiana. It's this small town in Indiana we was born in, not too far from Milwaukee. So we all knew the funeral home uh, there in Indiana. The funeral home offered to render services to my mother free. They came and got the remains and took her and her family back to Indiana and had the services there where he was born. And supposedly he was buried at the foot of my grandmother's grave.
2: Along with Earl Lindsay and Stephen Hicks, over the course of his interviews with Jeffrey Dahmer, Dennis Murphy and his colleagues would get the killer to confess to all 17 of his murders and identify the victims. But this is a process, and those with unanswered questions are filled with anger. People begin to ask, how did the police not know there was a serial killer in Milwaukee? And worse, how had he slipped through the net so many times? it doesn't take long for an explosive piece of information to be revealed. Back to Annie Schwartz.
1: The story very quickly evolved from a story about a serial killer to a story about why wasn't he caught earlier? It's the, it's the blame game. And the blame game came very early in the Jeffrey Dahmer case.
2: And you did a record search.
1: These are the days, no, it's no computer, it's it boxes of, of reports. I'd requested the reports of any police activity on Dahmer's street for six months before the murders. And there was a lot of it, but I found that there were two police officers that had encountered Dahmer and a young man named Conor X Synthesis and Phone. That story became the story that really uh, brought down the Milwaukee Police Department at that time.
2: As Milwaukee police deal with accusations of negligence and discrimination, Dahmer's legal team puts together a plan. Dahmer will admit his guilt, but he'll do so while pleading insanity. In the next episode, Jeffrey Dahmer is put on trial. Mind of a Monster Jeffrey Dahmer is produced by Aero Media for ID. The executive producer for ID is Jessica Lowther. AeroMedia's Media's producer is Rebecca Radiel. Editor, Sirkin Nihat. Audio engineering by Mahoney Audio Post. Our line producer is Philippa Whittle. Our junior production manager is Jody Tanner Wild. Our production coordinator is Shannon Tunicliffe. And our assistant producer is Isabel Wilson. Our archive producer is Katia Lone. Aero Media series producer is Gabrielle Nash. And executive producer is Stuart Pender. Jeffrey Dahmer is played by Andrew Groom. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow us wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.